kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 523. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, in honor of the upcoming holiday of Halloween, we're going to be going into the world of hammer horror and to guide us through this, this absolute dynasty of horror out of the UK from the 50s through the 70s. We have the great Stephen Simpson returning after far too long a hiatus, co-host of Pop Culture Gamers. And if you've heard him before... There's a rumor that Stephen is from the UK, and uh, yeah, he's going to offer us some special insights into the filmmakers, the actors, his favorite films, the legacy for their culture, et cetera, and so forth. But Stephen, welcome back to Wrong Real. I nearly think I should have a posh accent then for that for just one <laughs> brief moment. How would you describe your accent given uh, where you're from, et cetera, and so on and so forth? Well... Because I originally come from Berkshire, outside of London, sort of thing, uh, it was like a Reading accent, and that really doesn't change between me coming from middle of, middle of uh, the south down to the, the south coast where I am now. But if you were to, if you were going to go to the far left, you're going to get a Bristol accent where they talk like farmers and they talk like this. Um, but it just it's very mild in between each. It's not like you know such a huge country as the US where you might get accents that are completely um on a on a hinge there between different different areas you know one of the strangest and funniest things i ever heard on any podcast was when patrick stewart can't remember which show it was started imitating the way people speak in the the village where he comes from 
and it wasn't even English. Like it was completely <laughs> and totally <laughs> incomprehensible. And I've been in different places. I've been to Bath and I've been to uh, to York. And, yeah, Bath's not far from me. Yeah, I've been and I've been to London a few times. So I've traveled around. I went to even like some small towns like Ely to see the the cathedral. And it blows my mind, obviously, both region, class, education, but there's so many different factors. And mm. just like how the culture can change, or your city boy, or country boy, or whatever. But y'all have um, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to a wide range of accents. It's funny because how we feel so old as a country, and you know, we, we look at it like in Victorian times, we were doing what we were doing. But then if you then cut it into the US and how they were then, it's just like two different worlds, you know, from from what they were running around in horn horses and horseback or whatever. It's just crazy. Yeah, well, we're going to be going into a lot of Victorian times today. It was funny how when a lot of these Victorian horror characters were first created by the Brits in the world of fiction in the 1800s, they were all, not all, but most were in a modern setting for that time. Like when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. He mm. was taking this creature and putting him in a modern setting. But it's funny how as more and more time goes by, everybody always wants to make Dracula like a period story. And you see Hammer doing that here, except for the one exception, Dracula AD 1972, which we'll be <laughs> discussing. But I always found it strange how the Victorian authors really were trying to tell modern tales, but we regard them now as being so old-fashioned. Probably because whenever we watch these Hammer films, you know they're very stately and they're very elegant and they're very classy and sophisticated in terms of the way people speak and dress, et cetera, and so <clears throat> forth. But I feel like yeah, the essence of horror t- tends to be set in the modern day. Because I think, well, because a lot of it was gothic, so that's a different... I'll move my phone down there. Excuse me. Um, it's a lot very gothic, and that sort of sticks for that era, I think. I mean, gothic today... We don't look like what it was then. It's still more creepy, I think. Yeah, in America, people went batshit for gothic. I mean, you had Roger Corman doing his Edgar Allan Poe series. He, I mean, it was, you had these two rival phenomena, and Roger Corman's probably operating on a lower budget, but he was also enjoying a lot of success with Vincent Price. But you had Vincent Price doing all these Edgar Allan Poe films, and then over in the UK, you had Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing doing all these Frankenstein and Dracula films. And so, yeah, the world just went bonkers for period horror and then suddenly Night of the Living Dead comes along and Rosemary's Baby, and that just changed everything. <laughs> well, yeah, because that was running in, that was really running in tandem as well, Hammer was still going then. Yeah. And it was a different breed of, of cinema. Yeah, and when we talk about today about how Hammer in the early 70s did some slight pivots in order to try and um, adjust to the changing preferences of, of the time, but as you look up Hammer Horror, like top five lists or top ten lists online, it always blows my mind how much range there is like if you look up top 10 slasher movies you're pretty Mm. much going to see the same 10 movies on 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 most lists but if you look up everybody's top 10 favorite hammer horror films the orders can be different the movies can be different there's a very deep bench and for me there's really only a few standouts of like horror masterpieces but then you have like the second tier of just wildly enjoyable movies and i think it's fun to see where people fall on the like the the less established classics. But before we get into your top five and all that good stuff, just talk a little bit about how you first became aware of horrors. Actually, no, before we even do that, who is Stephen Simpson? What's going on with Pop Culture Gamers? So, yeah, so most of you probably know that we do a, a gaming podcast slash movie TV. And we're getting to probably, I think we're getting close to 100 episodes now, nice, believe it or not. Congratulations. So that, I think, think that might hang around 
when the new Xbox comes out, which is in about a month's time. So hopefully that might tie in nicely with that. And I'm praying to the gods that I don't get turned away from them and saying that, sorry, we've run out of consoles. They've told me one's on route, will be. So hopefully we had to What's uh, the first big that. game that Xbox is going uh, kind of wide with with the, the launch of the new console? Well... There's one I really, really want to play, but I might wait until the update, and that's obviously Cyberpunk, which you're very much well aware of. Yeah, yeah. And, reads. Oh, God, yeah. And so the the patch for that for the new console won't be until next year, so I might hold back on that and, you know, leave it. But there's, there's I mean, my, my mainstay of Destiny will be getting an up, update in December for that, for the um, the, the change in the, in the console and how it works and everything else. And there's some Assassin's Creed games coming out, stuff like that, and... Halo was obviously, that was pushed back for another year. So, you know, there's, there's quite a few bits and pieces still to be to come out. And the way now Game Pass works with Xbox, if you're not aware, because your Xbox Live can be an ultimate Game Pass and you're, you've are you got an access into 100 plus games for free. And any game that comes out on Xbox and it's their first party will end up going on Game Pass so you won't spend a penny. Gotcha. Yeah, it's funny how when I hear about the options to like to play hundreds of free games, it does nothing for me. I tend to play like two or three games a year mm. really aggressively, really intensely where I go all in and it just takes over all my spare time. Like if I'm not preparing for a video or a podcast, I'm either watching MMA, porn, or playing video games. Like those are my I do see you pop up on the screen occasionally when yeah, I'm Yeah, those are my, like my release valves and but right now I've been yeah. playing uh, mostly on my laptop because I've been playing early access on Baldur's Gate 3 and for people who don't, mm-hmm. don't know Baldur's Gate was the first really good computer game to kind of capture the D&D experience. There had been plenty of earlier games that tried to but Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 really pulled it off Mm. successfully and so Baldur's Gate 3 is in early access it's only part of the game but uh, yeah it's one of the things where I'm always tempted to start talking about MMA and video games on my various platforms but then I realize like if I do that then my hobby or my release valve or like the one thing I do solely for fun kind of gets turned into work and Mm. so I finally realized you know what just focus on commenting on film and television and let gaming just remain a hobby. Yeah. And, and do, on one side note to that, where I don't know if you would have been aware of it, but Microsoft bought Bethesda. Oh, interesting. $7.5 That's Yeah, that's a massive company. I mean, but yeah, I've, I've played a million Bethesda games. Exactly. And so all those games future will go to Game Pass. So the new Skyrim, which will be coming out in a few years. Starfield yeah. is another one. Yeah, I mean, Elder Scrolls Six is my most anticipated game imaginable. I've played three, four, and five, five being Skyrim. And they're all the type, those are my, those are my kind of, I don't know, God tier of gaming where I will go in and really not come up for air for years sometimes. I and mean, I played no. Elder Scrolls four for several years, I played Skyrim for several years. And sometimes I'll take six months off and then I'll come back in and create a new character. But yeah, I think I've pretty much done every single thing you can do did you go to Oblivion? Did you go to Oblivion as well? Oh yeah, well Oblivion was number four, so yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Oblivion was. I when I got my Xbox 360, Oblivion was the first game that I got, and I was just starting business school. So when I wasn't studying finance and accounting and econ and all that crap, I was yeah kicking people's li- asses. Or, or, listening to Patrick Stewart trying to get out of the dungeon into that world. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> in it. Yeah, he, they always get great, uh, great voice cast, um, so on and so forth. I'm probably gonna go down and buy the PS5 as well as the new Xbox because I do want to play Demon. Souls, the remastered version, which I've never yes, played before. Yes. 
But yeah, lots of cool things on the horizon, but Elden Ring, huge one from from software as well. But let's start switching gears into the world of Hammer. You've got a few years on me, but you're not old enough where you got to experience the kind of the dawn of Hammer Horror in real time. So as a young lad in the UK, when did you first start hearing about these movies? When did you first start experiencing them? So this would be early 70s. So then they would have started to put the Hammer movies from the 50s and 60s will start to appear on TV. Hence, some of the ones we'll be talking about today will, 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 be, will be mentioned. And that was my love, seeing Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing on screen together. I think they did some 22 movies together. Which is astonishing. Peter Cushing, he played Baron Frankenstein in six of the seven Frankenstein films, Van Helsing in five Dracula movies, and Cushing often appeared alongside actor Christopher Lee. But yeah, 22, uh, well, yeah, Peter Cushing did 22 horror films, period, with Hammer, with Hammer Studio. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, we've grown up with Peter Cushing, you know, and he's come out of that. He did Star Wars and everything else. It just, you know, it just blew blew my mind. And watching horror and how would I put it, the sexual revolution for the 70s and how that was, was advertised in horror as a forgetting the supernatural side for, for Dracula, for example. They would give you that busting out ladies that would be um, to the to the slaughter in some cases. But it was it was something I love to watch. And, and sometimes those girls doing the slaughtering because some of the most beautiful hammer horror ladies became <clears throat> vampires themselves to feed upon oh God, yeah. there's, there's a very willing of... men. <laughs> <laughs> they did. And it's funny because from where I was living at the time, we used to go to what my, my, my parents' dog in Black Park, which is where they did film a few of the Dracula scenes for those, those movies. And not aware of it at the time until a few weeks ago. But, yeah, it's it's great. And, obviously, Bray Studios, that wasn't far from us as well. Well, they did a lot of filming for the Hammer movies there in the area. I don't know if it's what it's like now. It's probably just still up, up and probably not working, but it's the buildings there on the Thames still. That was it, and it, it moved on from the 70s to the 80s. And the Hammer films are starting to drift away. They went into TV. And something I adore so much is the TV show called The Hammer House of Horror, which was early 80s. And they were single stories of, of horror and with twists and turns. The same way you get something like The Twilight Zone, you know, in the same sort of vein for that. But that was more science fiction. And, yeah, I just, just loved it. And the music, of course, is, is something else which I've actually been lucky enough to pick up a few of those recently because you can't forget that in, in a Hammer movie. They are sort of... Although, as I was bit... watching some of these documentaries you sent me, I never made the connection until this documentary that the theme to Dracula is basically just his name, like, Dracula. And so now, whenever <laughs> I watch any of the Dracula movies and they keep using that theme, I just start busting out laughing because it's so ridiculous that his theme music is just his name done in big dramatic notes. I kind of wish I hadn't been told that the, <laughs> his theme is, is it just his a little bit then for you, you know? Yeah, it's, oh my God, yeah. It, it, it was simple and effective and it's immediately recognizable when you yes, hear it. Yes, James Bernard did, did, did all sorts of scores. I mean, that was funny, ironically, that this um, last record store day we had, which is split into, it's split into three three days over a few months due to COVID, 
And I was lucky enough to pick up the original Dracula score and Frankenstein score as a double album. Nice. Which is, is something pretty special. Um, obviously, Blood Red for Dracula and the green colour, which I think, I don't know, maybe sticks out for, for the uh, Frankenstein movies with all the, the bottles of coloured liquids that would be in the laboratory and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the big things about Hammer, and people have talked about this ad nauseum, but prior to the arrival of Hammer, you really didn't have a lot of horror films in color. And I can't really think of any big examples, perhaps outside of the world of science fiction. But even before Curse of Frankenstein, which in the U.S. was 1957, I don't know what big horror films there might have been or big monster movies. Because uh, Ray Harryhausen hadn't, trans- hadn't transitioned into color yet. No. But seeing these creatures from most of whom have been made popular in the thirties in black and white, suddenly seeing them in color, that was a big deal. And that sounds like such a gimmick, but it's blood just looks different in red than in <laughs> black and white. And so to see Frankenstein's monster in color, to see Dracula, Count Dracula in, in color, that was a big deal. Part of it was a big selling point. More than a hundred years ago in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Wouldn't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane, evil, call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster, and now the monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature and see that you pay for these atrocities. No! But people need to remember that these uh, Hammer Horror films, from the first to the last, on the whole, were relatively like modestly budgeted films. I think a lot of times people forget that these were not big, giant Hollywood productions. They were being no. distributed by Hollywood studios, but they were modest, low-budget films. Oftentimes, they were being shot like several films back-to-back all at once using the same mm. sets and the same cast. So you, you get these strange double features with like echoes of the previous movies. And while they feel very classy and very glamorous, 
in the end, this is just a triumph of low-budget filmmaking where just this little studio <clears throat> made good and managed to reinvent the horror genre for, you know, uh, definitely for a couple of years. And then, of course, toward the end, you have, you know, like with any sequelitis phenomenon where you start getting diminishing returns, where you probably return to the well one too many times on the same characters. I mean, they made like seven Frankenstein films. <laughs> like, how many Frankenstein films do you need? They might have even made more Frankenstein yeah. films than Universal did in the 1930s. But they okay. did very successfully reinvent the mummy, reinvented the werewolf. They reinvented all these classic characters, and they had to do them totally differently in order to avoid basically being sued. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I think that the idea of um, trying to come up with a with a Dracula movie and not even realizing that hold on a minute, we 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 got to we got to watch this. But with, with the um, U.S. getting the, the, the rights as well, for the Dracula point of view, that it helped make that flick in the end, didn't it? So it's quite interesting how they... How, it's, I didn't know a lot of this, and it's interesting to hear how, how this all come about with the political side, especially with the Universal Monsters. You know, it's... The bolts and the necks were actually, you know, you couldn't go near that in a film. Yeah, the irony is that... The James Well Frankenstein starring Boris Karloff from the 30s almost bears no resemblance to Mary Shelley's novel because in Mary Shelley's novel, while initially he's a lumbering monster, he becomes incredibly eloquent and becomes incredibly mm. intelligent, sophisticated, almost like a like a super being by the end, apart from his physically repugnant appearance. So it's funny how Universal would claim such, I don't know, we claim so much territory on that character, even though it's a complete and total departure from Mary Shelley's original fiction. But let's start drifting perhaps into some of your uh, your choices, because there's no way we can recapture the yeah. entire Hammer era in, in this conversation. But for people out there who want to see some of these documentaries, there are two really good ones that you sent my way. And the first one's readily available, where it's just called "A Flesh and Blood: The Hammer, The Hammer Heritage of Horror." I guess it was probably made in the the early '90s. It's a you know, it, it's of its time. It's not quite as mm. in depth as perhaps uh, as I would like, but you still have a lot of these actors among the living being interviewed, and so that's really special to get to see Peter Cushing talking about these movies. And then, of course, you have this giant Warner Brothers documentary, which came out recently, which is all about the Warner Brothers distribution of Hammer Horror films in the 60s and early 70s, and I found that to be fascinating as well. So I'm not going to try and retell the tale that both of those did so well. I want to focus today on what Stephen Simpson loves about Hammer Horror. Absolutely. Do you want to mention the women first? I mean, this is your episode, so (laughs) if you're itching to dive into some of the Hammer ladies... They obviously so, played a, a massive role in the enduring legacy and popularity of this brand. Well, that's it, because in... Uh, so in <laughs> I, I wish I this was on YouTube, because your, your eyebrows, they definitely they rose when you said, do you want to talk about the ladies? <laughs> so, so obviously in the... I'm going, to, I'm going to cry my eyes out in a minute. So actually in the 70s, uh, censorship was being relaxed after the conservative period of the British cinema. So... What was happening was that the scripts from Hamill being submitted to the to the BFC on the British Bill Reform Censors, and they were obviously making cuts to make them an X. Uh, July Which in the, the UK is if, different than America. Like the the UK, yeah. I mean the the X certificate, at least in the fifties, that just meant for adults only, but it didn't mean porn. No, no, but you you would have thought that X being being X, and then yeah. obviously the the last letter of sex, but. Yeah, so like Curse of Frankenstein and what we call Horror of Dracula, what we all just call Dracula, those were both Certificate X, even though they're obviously very chaste. That's it. But what what was handy was that they raised the certificate to 18 from 16. Hence, Hammer then had a bit more of a 
a leeway in what they were showing. Gotcha. And from some of the films, even the ones we're not talking about, and there's a few I could mention where you see see completely naked women in it. It's it's something that was for 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 the adult own, or only audience. But the ham, the women of Hammer. I'll give you a little list of the ones I was thinking about, and they come to mind. So Ingrid Pitt, lover. She yeah. did the Vampire Lovers and Countess Dracula, and, and shows them in things like The Wicker Man and other other movies as well. Yeah. Obviously, Wicker Man's not Where, Hammer, but it's the same era. But she's a true icon and legend of the horror genre. Yeah, someone that I thought was was very attractive was Veronica Carlson, and she did the Frankenstein and Dracula's Risen from the Grave. Absolutely a gorgeous woman. The Collinson twins we'll talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, we have Madeline Smith, who, if, you, if you've not seen The Vampire Lovers or Taste of Dracula, she was actually in the very beginning of Live and Let Die. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she's incredible. She's a redhead in Vampire Lovers, but she's a brunette in Live and Let Die. Yeah. But Money Penny sees her kind of sneaking out, like holding her That's dress it. in her arms and gives her kind of a disapproving look. But it's a great little exchange between Money Penny and one of Bond's latest conquests. Oh, superb shorts. So, Stephanie Beecham, we probably mentioned later as well. Uh, she was busting out very much so in a certain movie. We got Linda Hayden in Taste of Butter Dracula. Obviously, we can't forget Ursula Andress in She, which I need to go back to because I haven't watched that for a few years. I actually just bought the book. The only H. Ryder Haggard I've ever read was uh, King Solomon's Minds. I took a fiction of the British Empire course in uh, college, and we Mm. only read kind of like these big, bold, heroic, what would now be regarded as like colonial fiction, but people in the 90s just had a a different attitude. But uh, King Solomon's Minds was a wild adventure story, but she obviously is one of his most popular books. And yeah, because of movies, I think it's been remade several times over, but obviously with Ursula Mm. Andress, she was the feature attraction. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, The last one I've got, actually there's two. There's one I haven't written down, you're going to shoot me for this. So Yvonne Yvonne Furneaux was in The Mummy, uh, another great movie. Well worth a watch with uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee dressed up as a as I a mummy prefer, in rags. I prefer the Hammer Mummy to the Universal Mummy because mm. you actually get the mummy as the mummy for the whole damn story. And the Universal one, everybody thinks you're gonna oh you're gonna see Boris Karloff dressed up as the mummy. He's the mummy in one scene, and then he's just kind of this old Egyptian dude the, the rest of the mm. movie. And, and it's like, dude, I came to see the mummy. Like, I don't want to see him wearing a, like a funny little hat. And so, yeah, I actually, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy the hammer. And it's great in color as well, which I, which I, I think it just, it just it even shows it more, especially for the Egyptian side of things with the costumes and, and all the, the sets and everything else. And one more woman I actually haven't written down in is Caroline Munro, which I think Oof. will be very prominent. I mean, there's so many great ones like like Yuta Stensgard. She's incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you already mentioned, uh, Madeline Smith. But there, there's a, a laundry list of uh, of some are beautiful girls, some are great actresses, some are both in one. Caroline Monroe, though, is a legit '70s sex symbol. I mean, she she pops up in uh, I think it's Golden yeah the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Obviously, did, pops yeah. up in two uh, two Hammer horror films. But man, in the '70s, it's hard to think of somebody. More more beautiful than Caroline Monroe. And the spy who loved me didn't last long in that one, did she? She got blown up in a helicopter. Yeah, but she but she plays. I mean, I love seeing beautiful women playing villains, and it's something that doesn't happen nearly often enough. I don't know why, but like you know, talking <clears> about something more contemporary, like the Marvel movies, when Kate Blanchett shows up as Hela in uh, uh, Thor uh, Ragnarok, she was incredible, and I just feel like 
it, you just get different qualities from a, a, a beautiful female, you know, diabolical villain. And luckily, Hammer does provide us with a few of those. Oh, God, yeah. So, I mean, there's probably some I've missed. There's, I think Kato Hara, I think, comes to mind. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, just a, an array of, of gorgeous women that have, have, have been in these roles. And I, as I say, if I've missed one out that's a favorite of someone else, it's not that I haven't. It's just it's so many to, to pick out on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get to your official top five, just any uh, thoughts on how Hammer came to be, how it transitioned in the 50s from, I mean, because obviously it started out with things like Quatermass Experiment, X the Unknown, and they they made this pivot, obviously, in 1957 with Curse of Frankenstein, but is there anything in particular about the early days that you want to call attention to, or should we just dive right into your number well, five? Well, I must admit, it's funny because the I haven't seen the original Quatermass Experiment, although I do have it now in a big hammer box set which i've got which i haven't got through them all yet because it's like i've, I've been using i've actually watched quite a few because i've got all the dracula movies now and a few other dracula vampire movies should we say that the hammer ones anyway um and then there was a quite mess experiment was it the question yeah i think the question was known as a creeping unknown in the states by the way wasn't it i think uh, it might have been. I don't know. I mean, obviously, the names get uh, kind of juggled about a bit, but I just have always called it Quatermass Experiment. <clears throat> because it's funny that from there, which, which, when it exploded, and we had, so Hammer had zombies. Obviously, there's bar- vampires, devil worshippers. Obviously, we had Baron Frankenstein, Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I mean... I could, we could be here for ages just reading yeah. off well, it's incredible just done. how many individual franchises they were able to launch and some more successful than others but just to give people an idea of how successful these films were when Curse of Frankenstein was released it grossed 70 times its production cost like mm. anytime you take your investment and you get 70 I mean if you, <laughs> do, if you double your money that's a hit if you get 70 times your production cost you're doing well, I think something it, I think very cost, special uh, actually i think it costs about under 70,000 pounds to make it absolutely and you watch it yeah, now no. and i think it holds up remarkably well but you can tell like the, the main special effect is just the chilling performance by peter cushing because people forget that in the hammer horror films frankenstein is a sadistic evil just rotten bastard and that, i think that's what sets the Hammer Horror uh, Frankenstein films apart is just how brutal and evil they were willing to characterize the the Doctor himself, mm. where even the Christopher Lee's horrifying as the monster, he almost comes across as a sympathetic character by comparison. Yeah, and obviously he didn't play all the characters in, in those Frankenstein films. I mean, we had... Uh, do you know what? I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Obviously, the guy that played Darth Vader. You yeah, yeah, yeah. David me. Prowse. Is that David Prowse, and yeah. that's it. He was the monster in one of them as well. And, and he looks it's funny absurd. I, I mean, some of the Frankenstein's monsters look better than others. I think the Christopher Lee one looks incredible because he quite literally looks like he's been patched together from a bunch of different sources. But there's one Frankenstein's monster where he quite literally looks like he's just wearing like a cardboard box on his head. It's like, all right, <laughs> tap the brakes. Let's, let, let's, let's do better. <laughs> we can do and there's one that looks like this. a teddy bear as well. You know, you know what I mean? Obviously not a cute teddy bear, but it's, you know, it's, it's incredible how they – Kept away from oh, yeah, it's the horror Frankenstein. Frankenstein from 1970, where it's David Prowse in a diaper with a shaved head, and it's like, you know what? You're just not that scary look. I mean, obviously he was. I, I love seeing David Prowse when he pops up in Clockwork Orange a few years later, and I love seeing him as Darth Vader. But Frankenstein's mm. monster. If if all you're doing is a diaper and a shaved head, well, then you're just not trying hard enough. Oh God, no, that's it. But uh, should we go? Should we move on? 
Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we're late, late, late. I'm watching so number. It's very difficult to make this as a top five. I've just done it. I think I've just not. Well, I haven't really thrown them in the air, but number well, five. Throw out as many honorable mentions as you like. I just wanted to have, you know, some sense yeah, of yeah. drama. They, I mean, there is. I mean, I mean the, the five I've chosen are prominent for Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. But there are there are others, um, which are a couple I'll mention later on. But. What I put as a number five is Captain Kronos, the Vampire Hunter. Very nice, which is a kind of an obscure cult classic that not a lot of people have seen. In the 18th century in Central Europe, a black terror swept across the face of the land. The curse of vampirism, which had been a half-forgotten memory for hundreds of years, returned with a fury that struck unholy fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. <laughs> One man dared to make a stand against this evil epidemic. One man dared to hurl a challenge of cold steel against the terror of the undead. He was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It is commonly supposed that a vampire attacks in only one way, by biting the neck and draining the victim of blood. The girls you spoke of, they were not drained of blood, but of youth, of life itself. You see, he's been bitten on the mouth. God's sake, I survived the vampire's bite. He is not the man you are. I'm doomed. My soul, a never-ending torment. Kill me! Kill me! Her life will be yours. Yours. Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling. Replenishing. Restoring. Take her. At your service, sir. To the death. Yes, you bleed, my lord. This is God's blade. Forged for your black heart. It's, how do I put it? It's a bit of an oddball movie compared to most Hammer films. It's very slow paced. And obviously we had got Captain Cronus is played by this German actor, Horace Jensen. And he comes across as this swashbuckling Errol Flynn type mixed in with Van Helsing, if you, if you know what I mean. And he's very dandy as well, if, if, I, if, I can, if it, that's the right word to describe he's him. A, yeah, he's a stud. He, he likes to, he enjoys and quite literally enjoys rolls in the hay with the ladies. And it was an attempt to start a new trilogy but it was a commercial failure, so it just, it's a standalone movie. Unfortunately, there were a couple of comics that were released for it, 
but uh, I've not seen them myself. But yeah, no, it just stood out for me because because of Carolyn Munro, and she was in the whole movie this time for a change. Yep. She didn't last 10 minutes like she does in most of her movies. Just seeing her in stocks, I mean, the, the credits are still rolling and and they're, they're going across the fields through probably, it looks like Berkshire at the best of times. And you see Carol Munro just in these stocks looking filthy, apples being thrown at her and all sorts. But she looks up and she looks dropped there gorgeous still. She yeah. could be wearing a, 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 a sack bar, a bag or something, anything else, and it wouldn't make the blind. She's going to look like difference. an angel no matter what, yeah. And yeah, I love how she's uh, she's been imprisoned in the stockades for dancing on a Sunday. I mean, how dare she? <laughs> <laughs> is it? Oh, oh, is this? You know, is this going to swing into footloose? I'm thinking <laughs> when you're talking about something like that. Well, and, these are very. What that's what's fun about these Hammer horror films is the clash between the repressive and the like, the libidinous. Because in a lot of these movies, you have like these withered up old men who want all girls to be good little girls and stay in their rooms and so on and so forth. But then they'll go off to like these disgusting brothels and things like that at night. Like there's these, like, all these interesting contradictions and hypocrisies. And so, but obviously that was part of the fun of novels like Dracula during Victorian times is that even mm. though it was a repressive time sexually, it gave people a kinky thrill seeing Jonathan Harker being, you know, preyed upon by all these girls and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it, there's probably not a lot to this movie, to be honest, because it's a lot of running around, it's a lot of a lot of horse riding, and the vampires aren't the vampires in this film aren't like vampires which we know of Hammer anyway, because some of the, some of those that got bitten are actually running around in daylight. I'm thinking, yeah, these are different. They they drain your youth <laughs> as opposed to your blood, and they yeah. leave you all withered up like withered up old crones. But I mean, what I like about it is like this: how it actually was breaking new ground in terms of genre. I, I really enjoyed the fact that they tried to turn a swashbuckler into a horror film or a horror film into a swashbuckler. And the fact that we've been hearing this whole movie about this guy who died a long time ago, but how he was the greatest swordsman ever. And to suddenly see him raised from the dead to fight Captain mm-hmm. Cronus at the end, like, oh, hell yeah. It's like a perfect payoff to have this legendary swordsman rising from the grave for one last duel against Captain Cronus, who... You know, he says, at your service, sir, like to the death, like there's a respect and like a salute. And that I find, I just think it's one of the most unusual Hammer horror films out of all the ones they ever made. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because that, that's why I, I'm watching that and I'm thinking it could be Errol Flynn. It's it is just so, totally. so back to that, even though Hammer did do some swashbuckling movies or any, or any of those people. Yeah. And how to say Hammer did some back in the 30s, 40s of those type of movies when they were doing like war movies and everything else. And I just thought, yeah, you know what, this is really good. And that last 20 minutes was a payoff for going through the rest of the movie. It very, so very slow paced, a lot of running around, but the, the, the realizing the plan to get into that castle and the bit that gets and turning me, like a giant steel cross <clears throat> into the sword that he's going to use to fight the, yeah. uh, the villains. Like that was really cool. And also, people have to remember that like Hammer was all about genre mashing at this point. Like they did the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which was mm. a a Shaw Brothers Hammer horror like you know co production where they combined martial arts with vampires. So they were basically trying everything they could to keep themselves relevant, keep themselves fresh. Because in the seventies, Hammer was kind of struggling to figure out what to do. Like what what people have to keep in mind, and this is articulated in one of the documentaries. In nineteen sixty three, the biggest film ever was Sound of Music. By 1973, the biggest film ever is The Exorcist. So it's like you're, you're seeing this massive change in culture 
in a 10-year period. And it's easy to think, oh, 10 years is nothing. Like, it goes by in a flash. But when it comes to tastes and preferences, especially among young people, the, the change in tastes was seismic during that 10-year period. So Hammer was always trying to not seem like a studio made by a bunch of stuffy middle-aged people. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like this was an, an, an effort to try to spice, spice things up a bit. Yeah, and it, it's funny because this is 1974, where other films you talk about were early 70s and completely different. And I think... I think as the 70s grew on, the the idea of what they were trying to do might have started to diminish a little bit. Yeah, felt old-fashioned. Yeah, and with what, with as you say, The Exorcist was coming out uh, and stuff like that, and we well, say Rosemary's Baby would have been, uh, not Rosemary's Baby, I'm thinking of, but those sort of style of movies. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, things yeah, like that. Yeah, so it was it was probably tongue-in-cheek to a lot of people, but they were damn serious about it. It, it You know, their, their making of movies was, was as... Serious as, as the next person. Well, so after so, Roman Polanski made the Fearless Vampire Killers in the late '60s, when I watched these, when I when I first discovered all these movies, obviously I was watching them out of sequence. But if you had been an, an audience member in the late '60s and you see this hysterical comedy making fun of Hammer horror films, how are you supposed to take any Hammer horror film seriously after the Fearless Vampire Killers? And so once, mm-hmm. as you said, it was very tongue in cheek, but. I can, I mean, just to see Caroline Monroe constantly whipping her hair around in this movie, like you, her, that head of hair deserves its own movie. And I love how no matter what's going on in the movie, they're constantly just cutting away to her and her reaction shots. But even if it serves no purpose, like they just constantly want to remind you, Caroline Monroe is, 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 is in this movie. She's in the background. She still sticks out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we do have a very chaste nude scene where you see nothing, but she is naked. But she was not into appearing naked on camera. So what the, she did, she basically wore like skin-colored um, you know, knickers and then ta- taped her hair down over her nipples. So, But she's in shadow so it's almost in silhouette. So you think you're getting the genuine experience, but you're really not. But yeah, I think watching it with a with a haze of VHS back in the day, maybe that that would have looked as as it was. If it was turned to 4K, I think you'd probably see the the tape and everything else. So it would ruin the experience even more. Then yeah, but also I like with the character of Captain Kronos how there's evidence that he's traveled all around the world fighting vampires because while he uses like a rapier. He also has a Japanese katana. It's like, oh, okay. Which I don't, did he actually use it? I don't think he did, did I, he? I it's always he, by he his whi- side. He whips it out when he's fighting the uh, the bullies. Like He's in this pub, and these three bullies are all talking shit. And he mm. basically takes out all three in like, with like two swings of the sword. But I just like the idea of this warrior traveling around the world, having adventures, fighting the supernatural wherever he finds them, whether that's in Japan or the UK or wherever. Well, the, actually, it's funny because when I was watching that scene, the one thing that stuck out was the, the guy that was – probably the ringleader his name's ian hendry and he just comes straight to mind i thought yeah he was he was dead in about 10 minutes in omen 2 gotcha because he's dead about 10 uh, minutes in this as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know but i mean brit when you come to some of the other movies you can people from the from from this side of the shore are going to see people that have been going for years in in british tv and they just suddenly you'll see somebody there that you think, oh, my God, you know, I remember him in so-and-so. But they it's a long stay of having British but still getting German, American actors and actresses in these movies. So they were very much international from that way as well and very appealing to everyone, I think. But there's so many great little bits in this with, like, this incredible sexual tension or there, <clears throat> it's a kind of a cheesy fight scene, but they're – Cronus takes on a bunch of guys at the top of this hill, and the, and the camera angles it, it's such in a way where you don't 
realize that you're actually like in like the British suburbs, like surrounded by houses. They're trying very hard to maintain this illusion that they're, you know, in Victorian times. But after he takes out all these guys, they cut away to this, um, to a shot of Caroline Monroe hopping in the back of this wagon. But she gives him this look like, oh my God, I finally know like who you are and we're going to fuck so hard tonight. But it's like (laughs) his incredible expression on her face. And there's this one great bit when they're getting it on when he's talking about how vampires killed his entire family. And he's this great man where he licks her before, uh, before getting it on with her. So it's not pornographic at all. There's no nudity in this movie, but no, there's just it's tons right. of sexual tension throughout, which I find very stimulating. And it's, and she's just very suggestive because those eyes of hers just when you want to melt, I think they suggest everything. Yeah. yeah you and I are very yeah. bald men. And if you look closely, you will see clouds of steam rising off of the top of our heads. <laughs> I can Anytime she appears on screen. So, yeah, and obviously Hammer picked her out from a Lambs Navy advert. Yeah, I mean, she was a model, but she she learned a lot about acting by getting to act opposite people like Christopher Lee and that sort of thing. And I like how in the 70s, Hammer started drawing upon different vampire lore than just Bram Stoker. They started drawing upon the Carmilla story, which the Carmilla story is actually even older than Bram Stoker's Dracula and so like, you start dealing with the Karnsteins and things like that. So I like the fact that we're getting some different source material for vampires, which is probably why we're seeing a variation on the vampires in this, because they're not your typical blood-sucking Vlad Shepesh kind of uh, Vlad Dracul yeah. stories. So so obviously this this was like a bit of a detective story for them, trying to find out who was who was killing everyone. Yeah. And when we get to see the... the, the um, the, ha- the castle where you've got, or say big house, where you've got the brother and sister. And they're looking after their mum. She's old and fragile. And we get to find out that actually she's not old and fragile, but that was the mask she was wearing. Yep. And what got me was, and this is what I was saying earlier, she mentions that she's can- she's Canstein by birth. So I would love to know whether or not, with some other films that we'll talk about later, that is something linked to this? I did try to look for it. Because, yeah, we get the Karnstein trilogy, but this is not part of it. Like, I think the Karnstein no. trilogy is Vampire Lovers, uh, Twins of Evil, and Lust for a Vampire. And I'm not That's quite it, sure what the, the official order is, but Sheridan Le Fanu wrote Carmilla. Like, so, maybe like, I think it's like 20 or 30 years before Bram Stoker's Dracula, but don't quote me on that because I've never read it. And so I'm embarrassed mm. to admit that I don't have a, 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 good, a full command of that original story. But I know that anytime, like the whole lesbian vampire craze, which got underway in the early 70s, and it was a, a full-blown craze, whether you're talking about films like Daughters of Darkness or Vampiros, Lesbos. But in 1971 in particular, I think there were like six lesbian vampire films that came out. It just became a trend. And so, of course, Hammer, good was, trend. Yeah, Hammer <laughs> wasn't about to miss it and decided to cash in. Because, I mean, I'll, I'll probably talk about it later, but yeah, those those three films were made within a year. Yeah. From 70 to 71. And, they quite yeah, literally very... banged them out, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. I sometimes say that, and people look at me, I just, sorry, no, it's like... Uh... Yeah, but I don't yeah, know no, where banged them out comes from, but it sounds obviously very sexual, but, you know, you can use it either way. I, I keep saying it on our podcast, and I keep getting dirty looks. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm uh, saying it, but... bang out this podcast. Just That's it. You two guys it. having fun. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's... Um, very interesting to see how that went, especially the old lady, uh, their their mum was actually 
looking as gorgeous as ever, using a mask to, to cover her. Yeah, and I was terrified identity. she was going to drain Monroe dry, but luckily Monroe, she she lives to fight another day. And uh, yeah, she. Oh, I was I was when she's there uh, hypnotized and just standing there while they were doing the deal, and I'm thinking, come on, wake up, girl, you know, absolutely, you got to get out of there. <laughs> I really am most honoured to have you here, sir. I am most grateful to you, my boy. You know, I'm alone in Seville. And uh, to be guest in someone's home, especially such a charming home like this, with such a wonderful atmosphere, is very precious to me. You are too kind, sir. I would like to show you a painting just before you retire. It's this one at the top of the staircase here. It was purchased by my father and illustrates one of the early operations. If you step back a little, you'll see better. Look out, So, as we've been talking about it, Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. It's one of the big ones. And it does look like it is an old movie. Let's not get away from that. But no, it doesn't deter at all from what we what you're seeing on screen visually. It's it's a film that, as you say, you've mentioned about Boris Karloff and how this was all going to be probably couldn't even be made due to the Universal suing them for this. So they decided to start from scratch, ripped up the scripts, and they decided they they decided to cast Christopher Lee in this role, and he didn't get much of a much of a talking part, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> but he gets to emote. He does. And it's very funny that most of his parts, he doesn't speak a lot, does he? He gets... Uh... Even the vampire films, first and foremost, he barely appears in any of them. And even when he does, there's some of the movies where he doesn't talk at all. Other movies where he has like one or two lines. Even in Horror of Dracula, where he has like his most pronounced role, he's only on screen for some. Is, I, I found it. It's some. Uh, he has 16 lines of dialogue and seven minutes of screen time, and that's the most dialogue and most screen time he gets in any of the vampire films. So it's like if you're yeah. showing up to see Christopher Lee, savor it and appreciate it when he does. But he gets. <laughs> he probably gets more screen time in Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, probably much more in some of the. Uh... The, uh, the movies he did later in life before he yeah. passed away. And we got to give a shout out to Terrence Fisher who directed this and Horror of Dracula and so many more because without Terrence Fisher, I don't really know if the Hammer Horror craze would have ever really gotten well and fully underway because mm. his style, his aesthetic, his ability to shoot films uh, you know, at, at, at a very, very low budget, it seems like at least in the late 50s through the early 60s, he gave Hammer some of their biggest successes and even like after this he went on and did like revenge of frankenstein he did the mummy he did brides of dracula he did curse of the werewolf with oliver reed he did phantom of the opera he just he kept making he did the gorgon so i feel like he really did define their house style for so many years i mean it just goes on like dracula prince of darkness frankenstein created woman the devil rides out i mean these are huge frankenstein must be destroyed frankenstein and the monster from hell it's like terence fisher is all over hammer and it's great to see that a lot of these are available if you've got Prime Video uh, available to f- watch for free. So yeah, it's not hard to that. find these films. Look, I mean, there are plenty of times where I'm doing we're doing chapters of film history where, regrettably, it's really hard to uh, 
you know, do the uh, Easter egg hunt trying to find the films. But with Hammer Horror, I feel like it's, they've been so beloved for so many decades that these films mm. are readily available. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting how this the idea that Peter Cushion had a break in his TV role that he could get to play this role. Yeah. Um, if that never would have happened, uh, God knows who they would have cast for it. And it probably wouldn't have been as... Changed his life. Yeah, it changed his it, life it did. forever. And I, I, there's something about Peter Cushing... Even if you just go through his list of films he's done, it's he's such a gentleman and he's always enthusiastic, wants his input on the movies and what they're, you're going to do. Um, he's just one of a kind. And, you know, it's a shame when he passed. But uh, but even when he you know, looked down upon the material, which was frequent, because even with this, mm. I, at one point, very famously, Christopher Lee was complaining about not having any lines to Peter Cushing's. Well, you're lucky because I've read the script. And like, you know, he... <laughs> But he had this attitude where yeah. if you play these parts with total sincerity and as much earnestness as possible and you're completely invested, it elevates the material. It makes the audience believe. And no matter how hokey these films become, and some of them are a little clunky at times, Peter Cushing always plays it totally straight. And it just allows you to be more invested in these worlds. And for an old kind of skinny, brittle-looking dude... He was incredibly physically fit and very spry and loved doing stunts well into the 1970s. But in all these movies, you'll see him leaping off things and like jumping over banisters and jumping off tables. And mm -hmm. I just love how physically invested he was in just bringing these movies to life. Yeah. And I suppose not to forget, really, that he's the villain of the piece in these movies. Hell yeah. I mean, I mean he's, he's and, way more scary than the, the actual monster. Yeah. And you know that from the word go. He, the movie opens with him in jail confessing to a priest. Yeah. So you get this framing device. He's about to go to the guillotine, and he's basically confessing what he's done. Absolutely. And it, it's ironic that we're, we come to, we speed forward to the end of the movie, and um, there's a second one, and he talks at the start of the film saying that I escaped the guillotine. Yeah. How, how, how he did that, I do not know. Because we don't see we don't see him die in the end of the film. We just see the guillotine go down. Yeah, I mean, like they're just trying to keep these things going. And sometimes these movies have strict continuity. Sometimes they have loose continuity. I mean, the beginning of Dracula, eighty nineteen seventy two, doesn't jump off of a previous one. It just kind of uses the previous movies as like a loose backdrop. And some of these movies, it's like the scene ends and they just go right into the next scene, and boom, you're you're in the next movie. It all depended upon just what they felt like doing at the time. But if you want, when you're talking about like villainous things that Frankenstein does in this, the big one is when he's looking for the brain for his monster. He invites mm. the professor over to dinner, winds him up, dines him up, and as he's escorting him to his room to put him to bed, basically asks him to examine that painting by um, I think it's a Rembrandt. It's a very famous Rembrandt painting mm. of. Um, Somebody being um uh what what they call not, not lobotomized they're doing performing an, an autopsy <laughs> <laughs> and he asks him he's like oh well, if you step back you get a better better view of it and as he steps back oh yeah here it is it's uh, Rembrandt's painting the anatomy lesson of Doctor Nicholas mm. Tulp but yeah he murders this guy straight up and then later on when his housekeeper who he's been fucking is threatening to blackmail him. He just feeds her to the monster. And so, yeah, I, I, th I find the fact that Peter Cushing is so villainous in this to be riveting. And he's, he's, he's like a serial killer, but he's very cool, calm, and collective. Yeah. He's not, he's not worried about what he's doing. He, know, he knows exactly what he's doing and what he's doing it for. And his experiments are, he's, you know, he obviously started as a young guy that went into, into the world of med medical. And 
with uh, his friend there in the beginning of the movie. You know, he's he's a kid, basically, he's a teenage little teenager, and he's learning all this this uh, these books with him, and you know, it's his life. You know, nothing else matters to him. Whether he's got loved ones or not, they can be fallen by the wayside as far as he's concerned. And uh, it, it's, it's injection into what he, he adores. I mean, even with the puppy at the beginning in the film there, when, when they, they drain the, obviously they've got the uh, the tank and everything. And you've got all these copper copper bits with plates in there and everything else. And you've got, you've got these big wheels with the, for the, 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 the effects. And this puppy, it's all cute. Oh, we, we've just got a puppy back to life. And it's like, we've, we've done it. No, 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 no. That was just a tester. <laughs> I want to go to the real thing. And it's as much as he's cute then with what's going on, it's turned on his head when he wants to actually create a person and put limbs together, which if we did it today, maybe it would be very gory and gory at all. And then the blood wasn't there as, as much, even though it is to a certain degree. All I'd say, I and, mean, just the red opening <clears throat> title cards, you're like, oh, Red has come to horror, and now it's something we take for granted. We're used to buckets of blood and things like, you know, Peter Jackson's brain dead and things like that. But it was a mm. new thing to have the opening credits, just the title cards, be completely red. And it just announces that, like, you know, the horror genre is changing from this point forward. Yeah. And as you say, with color as well, the posters that you've got over the years from these different movies, they're just classics. They, yeah. They're worth a fortune if you've got the originals. Often, oftentimes over-promising, and then the movie would under-deliver, but I, I, there was this great <laughs> interview where Joe Dante saw these, like, this poster for Vampire Lovers, and he saw some publicity stills for another movie. He's like, well, were those scenes cut? Like, what's going on here? But Hammer would sometimes make a poster and then raise the money, or they would do all these wild publicity stills for their movies, and then have none of those scenes in there, most famously probably for Twins of Evil, which we'll get to in a bit, but they had all these incredible publicity stills of the twins and basically making you think you're going to see quite a different movie than what the final product. I mean, the final product is fantastic, but I just love how when it came to marketing, they were not afraid to exploit the subject matter. Oh, God, yeah. And some of these posters, they were, were like pop culture in the end. Was it, was it Dracula Wizard from the Grave? And yeah, they had a woman the with the two art, plasters. Yeah, yeah the, the two under- pink band-aids on her neck. And um, what was the name? There's a very famous poster designer who did that. His name is Bill Gold. But Bill Gold was uh, you know, one of those classic kind of Madison Avenue New York marketers. And he's like, yeah, if you want to make Hammer feel young, hip, and cool, the posters have to appeal to 60s counterculture. Yeah. And they can't feel like they're going to visit like, you know, like a mansion or a museum or whatever over in the UK. And so the posters in America oftentimes bear very little resemblance to the, the film in question, but it worked. And people went to these movies in fucking droves. I mean, Martin Scorsese talks about how as a teenager in the 50s, it was a really cool thing to do for a bunch of kids to go check out the latest Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee film. And obviously it must be a big influence on what they were doing later in their own, own film careers as well. It must have, you know, to see that as a kid, and it was scaring the pants off them. You know, I don't think if anyone watched a Hammer film now, they would be scared to a certain degree, as much as I think the music can probably bring that out, and there's just some scenes which, you know, you can see why they would have been scary for the time. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic what, what, what they come up with. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese talked about the big moment that had a massive impact on him is the arrival or the introduction of Christopher Lee as Dracula in Horror of Dracula, where you just see him standing at the top of the stairs. But it's one of the all-time great shots in horror. And he walks down the stairs, just like a, a proper gentleman. It's like, like, 
hello, like my name is Count Dracula. Like, welcome to my house. Like, wait a second. Like, you're just <laughs> talking like <laughs> like a regular guy. But, but he, but he Chris, glides down there, though, doesn't yeah. he? He doesn't walk. He glides as if he's on wheels. Yeah, but Christopher Lee, he, I, I think sometimes people perhaps ham it up too much when they're uh, playing these characters. And I love how Christopher Lee's like, nope, I'm just going to talk the way I talk. And it completely works. But another great intro, and I think Curse of Frankenstein has one of the great intro shots of any monster from any era is mm. not era era when dr frankenstein realizes that his creation is on a rampage in his uh in his lab opens up the door and you see him standing there almost like a mummy in bandages and mm. the camera dollies in really quickly right as christopher lee just leers into the camera and it's so subtle and so simple but i think it's one of the great iconic moments in the entire history of the genre and he looks like a car crash, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> it's it that dead eye and like that one patch of his head that looks like it came from another person. And he just gets worse and worse and worse as the movie goes because they, they shoot him in the face and they do all these horrible things to him. And he just keeps getting more and more gnarly as the it's, movie proceeds. It's quite interesting to see the color of the blood when he gets shot in the face with a shotgun. Yeah. And he, his eyes up against it. You know, he's got shot in the eye, maybe. And that blood's just trickling down between his fingers. And it's so bright. Um, even you probably, I don't know if you would have noticed it, but some of the roses that were in those scenes were actually extra painted red. Gotcha. Just to stick them out a bit more. That's smart. Uh, just, it's superb. And you know, right to the end when unfortunately he gets burnt and drowned at the same time, you know, on the rooftops, but yeah, it, it, it's a really good Frankenstein film. And I think people should, to, to check it out. Absolutely. You know, it's, well, let me check your movie trivia this was not the first time Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee appeared in the same movie together. What is the very first movie in which the two of them appeared? I guess. <clears throat> Let me think. They didn't what share any it? scenes, but there are actually two movies prior to this where they were both in the same movie prior to Curse of Frankenstein. Well, it would have been The Mummy, wouldn't it? Probably. No, the first, oh, no, one, that, the first that... one they ever appeared in together was Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. Lee has a small oh. role as a spear carrier, <laughs> and Cushing plays Osric. And then they also appeared... Oh, you know what? They appeared in three movies prior to Christopher Frankenstein because they also appeared in Moulin Rouge together in 1952, and they appeared in Alexander the Great in 1956. So they were not close friends yet, nor were they collaborators, but they had been you know, at least around each other on the same sets prior to Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, I could have scrolled down and probably cheated, but I, I didn't, so that's all right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I say it's such a great film. I mean, yeah. I, I love the scenes in Frankenstein movies. Some of them I've watched, even some of the later ones, where they got, you know, they got an arm. I can't remember which one it was, but there's one where they, there's an arm in the water and it, and it sort of comes to life and it grabs somebody. I don't think it, it might have been, I'm trying to think it would have been, I think there was a Frankenstein film in the, late 70s might have been early 80s when it might have been david mccullum was involved in i i'm just this is off the top of my head they they i just loved it and i just loved the laboratory as i said before in this case obviously the lightning struck outside it was, it was always a storm going with frankenstein isn't there and the the, the storm triggered off the uh, the electrical uh pulse that would have gone through the plates on in the water that brought him to life and yeah the poor the poor guy lobotomized a couple of times patched together put on chains in a corner. Christopher Lee must have had fun doing that. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, of course, like later on, <clears throat> the monster would change. Like by the time you get to Frankenstein Created Woman in 1967, you've got like a Playboy centerfold model, Susan Denberg, p- playing the quote unquote monster, but she doesn't look anything <laughs> like that. No, I, I, actually have to, I did watch that a, a few months ago because that's in my box set. And uh, it's not a bad film, actually. It's. I just if it's got Peter Cushing in it anyway, that's oh, all I need. So to. many of them. Yeah, I mean, you got Revenge of Frankenstein, The Evil of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. The, the, the list goes on and on. Well, I, I think the the first one it holds up really well. I've probably seen the first one four or five times. It's always a delight mm. and yeah, a, a, a well deserved classic. But what do you got for us for your number three? Look on me. Look on me and remember. I think we're going to go to 1972. All right. And we have Dracula in, I think, might have been the sixth out of the seven. I don't know. I, I must confess, I am not an expert on the official order of all these, and I oftentimes get them mixed up. If you were to ask me, like, what goes on in Taste the Blood of Dracula versus some of the other ones, it's like... <sighs> Yeah, but AD seventy two is easy to keep it separate because it is in nineteen seventy two in like you know in swinging London. So, and yeah, and what was great about this film was that he dies twice in this film. Yeah, so it starts off in eighteen seventy two in Hyde Park. There's a big battle on this on this coach. So Van Helsing and Dracula are... are it's are, fucking are... epic too. I mean, I think <laughs> of all the great scenes in Hammer horror. That mm. opening bit, which is basically like a stand-in for all the previous movies, just showing like it's their like a, their It's struggle. like a Bond film, isn't it? There's, there's a, there was a previous movie somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And we're seeing the end of it. Yeah, and it, it just it looks so cool. It's got so much action. The fact that like the carriage is like it's running away, and the fact that Cushing and Dracula are fighting like blow to blow. I love how in these movies 
Dracula doesn't have the strength of like a hundred men. He's just like a little stronger than like your average guy. So Peter Cushing and yeah. Christopher Lee are able to have like wrestling matches and fist fights, and that for me is always a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, because because obviously Peter Cushing, uh, Peter Cushing's um, character in in the books going way back was a frail old man to Absolutely. a certain degree. Yeah. So he was, yeah, I mean he was fit there. He was doing them scenes himself. He, he loved doing the the fight scenes. Absolutely. And, as a as a as a kid, I remember collecting the bubblegum packs, and what for, I had for, all these eighties seventy two. Yeah, yeah, and and others as well. And I remember seeing the I remember the cards. I, I did certain pictures. I remember like obviously um, Dracula gets staked via the the crash of the coach and the, the and the what obviously one of the wheels comes apart and it sticks into his chest. And that image was one of the cards I had. And it's just so imprinted in me as much as we, even though we're not going to talk about the last film he did where the, he died. Rights. Yeah. He dies in, in, in thorns in a, in a bush of thorns at the end. And that picture was another one I can't remember having, but yeah, it was, it's such a good start to a film. I know this is very, probably it's not one that everyone would probably go to out of all the, all the movies. Well, it's controversial, not controversial because people love Christopher Lee, but it's, people are divided on it. Some people adore this movie and some people think it's yeah. ridiculous. And I think time has been very kind to it because it's 1972 in 2020 is almost as foreign as like 1872. And it's like, it's such a weird <laughs> depiction of London. And I think it's fair to say that you have a bunch of middle-aged filmmakers who are trying to, cash in on making movies feel more contemporary and like appeal to the youth market but it's such an unusual hybrid of flavors with all mm. the music and like the kind of lame attempts at capturing like hippie culture and that sort of thing i find this movie to be delightful it's actually the second hammer horror film that i ever saw after horror of dragon oh really yeah and so I've, I've been watching this movie off and on for like 24 years and it's it's totally bizarre, but I think it's better because of how unusual it is. And the fact that you have this ridiculous ritual, they're bringing Dracula back from the grave, and everybody's like wiggling and singing and screaming and freaking out. And Caroline Monroe is like, take Give me, me. More. like all this shit. I mean, it is fucking bananas. <laughs> because Stephanie Beecham, obviously, plays um, Van Helsing's... Uh, Van Hel- she's a she's a, a legacy to that. Yeah, Van Helsing's to, to descendant. Yeah, and she's another Playboy model. Oh, I, I, I didn't. Did she do that? Okay, I, I'd not looked that one up, but yeah, okay. Yeah, she's, I, I she totally appeared agree. in other movies, but not in this one. No, so obviously she's in. You know, it's it's the uh, the the guy who John. I, I can never pronounce his name, but John Aclaude. Should we say if that's how you pronounce it? He um, obviously joined this group of kids and took charge of them to a certain degree. And yeah, obviously, from what we could say from the pre-start and the credits, that there's a descendant of him who picked up the ashes and witnessed the demise of Dracula, and unfortunately, at the same time that uh, Peter Cushing's um, Van Helsing died as well. But obviously, putting putting that into a stake in Hyde Park and some of that there, and leaving it there, so his descendant can can pick up the story. Yeah, it seems like almost all these Dracula sequels, half the movie is just about bringing him back. 
just so they can kill yeah. him again. Like when you watch, um, oh, I was uh, I was watching this the other night just for a giggle. Taste the blood of Dracula. Yeah, but yeah. It was the halfway mark before he even comes back, but it's like they spend thirty or forty minutes just going through all the going through all the motions to to, to get him back in action. And same thing well, holds it. true in seventy two. Because he wasn't even going to be in that Dracula movie, was he? And it was like the, the the U.S. distribution of that decided that you know it's got he's got to be in it, and uh, so. And they would always twist his arm and lay a big guilt trip on him and say, look, we know you're tired of the character. We know you don't like doing it anymore. But think of all the people who would be employed if you agree to show up for five minutes because then yeah. you've got an entire movie that can be marketed and sold and, dis- and distributed just on, based on your involvement. And so he's like, all right, fine. Like, I'll, do, I'll do another one. So they just kept laying this guilt trip on him because it did keep people employed. Absolutely. And Madeline Smith was in that one, by the way. I don't know if you remember seeing her. She was one of the, the girls in the, uh, in the brothel. Yeah, 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 she was she the one who was um, super innocent and like had yes, just come, it, yeah. yeah, she'd just come out of a convent and she didn't even know what a brothel was. <laughs> she playing the scene. <laughs> she didn't know anything. She was so pure. <laughs> yeah, but the other now, scenes we... in the brothel, not her scene, but the other scenes. Yeah. there's boobs galore, and the and the others like you know, as people are kind of storming into rooms looking for things. But yeah, so I, I enjoy that one. But um, I enjoy seventy two more. Seventy two. It's just such an unusual hybrid of different flavors, and Caroline mm-hmm. Monroe is just so great. You have this horrible rock band in an opening scene at a party, but Caroline Monroe's dancing as if like the Rolling Stones are playing. She is like got this like tight black outfit. The music is just shrill. Like, it is, it is unlistenable. It's just typical seventies, early early seventies. But the party's totally groovy, yeah. and everybody they're 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 just. As she keeps saying it. It's going to be a giggle. It's going to be a giggle. And this guy talks him into performing this satanic black mass to raise Dracula from the grave. And of course, Carol Monroe. I think the best bite of any vampire film the Hammer ever did is when Christopher Lee and Caroline Monroe when they uh, when they meet each other. She's afraid, but then he bites into her, and she's just loving it. And like she just like she's like you can tell she's having like orgasm after orgasm as she's fed upon. Yeah. And Lee's eyes look so great; he's wearing those great red contact lenses. And yeah, I think it's one of the great feeding scenes. It's, it's unfortunate. I'd like to have seen her actually just got bitten the once, so she would have been a vampire. Yeah. Now she would have and been a great she... vamp without a doubt. They, oh, they kill God. her off way too quickly, but she's lying there on this altar with like like this black dress that's split down to the navel. I mean, she just looks like an absolute goddess. <laughs> and I think if she was a vampire, I'd be first in the queue. Yeah, I absolutely. Been, like I, I mean, I'll be first in the queue for any movie starring Caroline Monroe. But yeah, it's the, um, the one big knock against the movie, which I will concede, is that they made a strategic error of having Dracula stay in this abandoned church the entire movie. He never goes out into swinging London to experience no. 1972. He kind of stays in this little time capsule gothic world. And it would have been interesting to see him you know, in Piccadilly Circus at night, feeding up, feeding up on people. Yeah, because obviously he could. Have, obviously, he uh, he he was. It was in. Well, actually, they said it was. It was High Park where he died. But obviously, the guy that um, took his ashes and stuff went over to another part of London. Obviously, it's Chelsea. Chelsea. So yes, he went to Chelsea and, and plonked it in there. And if he'd have been walking down the King's Road at night, I mean, I, I've still got images now of uh, Love at First Bite with David Hamilton doing it. And uh, it might have been a bit of a comic comedy role if he'd done it. And so probably it was better that he was left in that Gothic church because that's how we're remembering the most. Yeah, but it's like... The novel Bram Stoker's Dracula was a contemporary novel, and when Dracula is walking around London, he dreps he dresses like a modern day Englishman, and it would have been interesting yeah. to see Christopher Lee put on a suit 
and dress like a 1972 Brit and then but continue to feed upon people? Because uh, I feel like he's so, he's lived for so long. Like when he, when he first gets confronted in the original story, he's been around for centuries and he's had to adapt and change as mm. time goes by. And I think that would have been an interesting twist in this film. But what is fun is at the very end when Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are chasing each other around this church and you've got all these groovy 70s tunes playing and you could say it's a pathetic attempt by middle-aged guys trying to cash in on pop culture but for whatever reason now it just absolutely plays deliciously and um yeah i think and you also have a great line that's inspired by the novel christopher lee says something along the lines about um he's taunting he says you would play your brains against mine against me who has commanded nations and it's a it's a throwback to a line from the novel where he says, whilst, yeah. whilst they played their wits against me, against me who commanded nations and intrigued for them and fought for them hundreds of years before they were born, I was countermining them. So they're clearly still keeping the book in the back of their brains as they as they write these scripts. Which is, which is a nice nod. Not that a lot of people may know it, but it was a nice nod. And then seeing Stephanie Beecham lying on the altar, well... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah Stephanie Beecham is just... And uh, she has... Um, she did a, a nude movie called uh, Nightcomers, where she gets it on with Marlon Brando, if you're a Stephanie Meacham fan. And there's a great line, a great shot of her when she's sitting up on the altar, basically with her boobs poking straight out. <laughs> but the uh, crucifix hanging between her breasts is causing Dracula pain. And Or there's another great shot as uh, she's leaning back over a jukebox as her, as her boyfriend like leans in to bite her but before <clears throat> being told that she's for the master. But... Yeah, I think she she nails it, and it's interesting having Van Helsing's like great great granddaughter play such an interesting role. It doesn't always have to be Van Helsing matching yeah. wits with Dracula. No, there's one line that would make me chuckle just because I'm a Brit, and Stephanie Beecham has has come home from that last whatever night it would have been, and she picks up a a book in his uh, in his library which is to do with devil worshiping. So this is obviously before they were going to go down to the uh, to the church. And she's sitting there with her legs up as if it, she owned a chair in, in, in his office. And he, he sees her, picks the book up, and he, he's, he says, well, this, this, is not a, this is not a shop, this is not a library, whatever. This is not W.H. Smith & Co., who are still going today. They are a, a shop with books and an array of stuff that they sell. And they're still a bring, big brand at the moment. And to hear him say it as Smith & Co. is not what it's, it's just W.H. Smith now. And you'll see him in every high street in the U.K., so they it, that lingers on from from then, and I, I quite like that. It's London looks different then. I remember it being like that. I know you look at the vehicles, so therefore there's a change. But a lot of those places still haven't changed that much. Yeah, it's funny how it is tricky getting Dracula into the modern age. I, I recently watched the uh, the BBC Dracula, which came out I guess like in January. Mm. First episode I thought was just an absolute masterpiece of television. Second episode starts to struggle a bit, and the third episode which is set in the modern day, which is an absolute, complete, and total train wreck with this horrible ending. Mm. I was like, why did y'all drop the ball? Like, it, it starts with so much potential and so much promise. But I'm trying to think, like, modern-day vampire stories that have worked, I mean, like, Near Dark is a great example. I really enjoy Fright Night. Like, it, it, it can mm. be done, but Dracula has to be very slick and confident. And, and you know, I, I think it's, it's better when you show how easily they're able to adapt to the changing times as opposed to making them feel like mm. a, a man a man out of place or a man out of time yeah yeah i mean gary oldman's dracula was was very different 
And I still, I've got a bit of a soft spot for that movie. Yeah, I, yeah I, absolutely. I, like no, it. I really enjoy it. And when it comes to combining like erotica with vampires, it's definitely one of the one of the all-time greats on that front. What's funny, when you talk about all these sequels and all these recurring characters and mm. how many of these movies are connected, Hammer in their own way was almost kind of doing like a Marvel Cinematic shared universe decades before Kevin Feige had that same idea. And obviously like when you watch Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed, it's not really connected, but it feels like it's set in a similar world. And so maybe this is the first fully functional shared universe on, on the screen because the Universal movies... There were a lot of sequels, and they eventually would collide. But by the time you get to things like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, mm. they basically wiped the slate clean on all the on all the continuity. But there was a decent amount of continuity in the late 30s, early 40s. It's funny how the world of horror kind of figured all this out long before the 21st century, where it really got to be in vogue. Yeah, I can't. I never could understand how the uh, the original Dracula. He looked so puffy. He did. When I look at photographs now, I just does. I just before sort of the, the before the morphine got to him, yeah, because uh, <laughs> Bella Lugosi became sadly a bit of a substance abuser, and he got a little gaunt and eaten away by yeah. uh, by the, the late thirties, early forties. But yeah, no, it's um, yeah, there's there's some classics there. I just love it. It's brilliant. Well, cool. Well, let's uh, let's keep pushing forward. What's uh, what's your number two? So number two is. It's very difficult to put a number one and number or number two, but I just did it this way around, just to split up Count Dracula. But Twins of Evil is probably one of my watched, most watched or much viewed uh, Hammer film ever. Wow! All and... right. Oh God, have mercy on this poor, unfortunate creature. In old Gothic Europe, they had two burning passions: witch hunting and devil worship. <laughs> the black arts they worship the devil they're all slaves to count Constein, and he is their evil master do you know what i want more than anything else to meet count Constein. <gasps> they look alike they dress alike two identical beauties but one of them has the very devil in her. For you, all pleasures should be supreme. These are the men they call the Brotherhood. Seek out the devil worshippers by burning them! And this is the sister who is about to enter the devilhood. Look, what do you see? <gasps> we are the undead, immortal. The devil has sent me twins of evil. You will be Maria now, unsuspected, good and kind. Think of the havoc you can cause. I thought it was your sister that I loved, but now I know. Maria. Twins of evil. 
I've seen it many times. I was glad to pick up this Blu-ray not too long ago because it's you try and find this online. I don't know if you can get it anywhere unless you have to pay for it. So I just I just love the twins. They're just they're just so good in this. So you've got obviously this was in 1971, so beginning of the sexual revolution for Hammer. And Mary Madeline Colliston playing these twins of Maria and Freda Gellhorn. And they're just a joy to watch in this film. It's even though they don't start very early in the film, I don't know, they just got such an attraction. And yeah, I, I mean think, they're they're fucking adorable because they're st- they're so cute. It's not like they picked these like va va voom hourglass figure like sex pot yeah. ca- uh, actresses. They're kind of they have a little chubbiness still from like their youth, and they're just really sweet and innocent looking. And the mm. fact that one turns into this wildly hot vampire by the end <laughs> really just sets the imagination ablaze but it's incredible how you know they had been at, at age 18 in playboy back in october yeah. of 1970 they were the first ever twin playmates and they did a few more sets later on but they'd already appeared nude on film the previous year 1969 and they movie called some like it's sexy and i think they would have only been like 17 at the time so i don't quite know what the rules were on uh nudity in movies at the time or if everybody just kind of looked the other way but they were no strangers to be to to get naked but they just they're so game and they're so into it and you can tell they're just thrilled to be there and they just hurl themselves into every scene and mm. they're they're incredible in this movie and peter cushing playing yet another villain he plays one of these classic kind of dudes with like a stick up his ass who's really <laughs> really repressive and thinks like everything's the work of the devil and he's incredible everything's the work of witchcraft and it's basically like it's like witch finder witch finder general yeah. territory yeah, yeah we have hordes of old men who just they spend their evenings patrolling the woods looking for pretty girls so they can burn them it's so like, are they all perverts then really do you know what i mean it's I think it's safe to say that for every person who's a genuine believer that they're doing the right thing, trying to hunt witches, there are other people who are sexually repressed who are unable to fuck these girls, and so the only other option is they have to burn them. And the irony is that the vampire, the Count, calls them out on their hypocrisy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he plays plays Gustav Will, doesn't he? He he plays such a great role, Peter Cushion. Again, he he never fails to entertain in his roles and it's the same voice, but he just is a different character, but he just loves vampires. I think it's probably his first love. And actually the twins, they were, that was their first, that was the first magazine shoot with twins. I think apparently for the yeah. playboy as well. well. Yeah, it was the first time they've done the, the gimmick sense. And of course they've done triplets and all kinds of things, but yeah, this is another example where Hammer was over-promising and under-delivering because it is so many ridiculous publicity images for this movie. We were like, oh my God, like this, we're going to see like Caligula when we see this movie. But the nudity, <laughs> it's, it's, it's suggested, I mean, there's this great scene it's- where... Where the vamp twin is, uh, you know, her her nightgown is kind of uh, coming That's undone it, yeah. as she's fight as she's trying to make out with Anton, but you really don't see that much. I mean, for considering the publicity images, the movies, I I don't I wouldn't say it's a disappointment, but it's much more suggested than overt. Yeah, I mean, if you were to do such thing as a as pause the film, there you think you, you might see more than what you think you're seeing, but it's very well hidden i think even though you think you're seeing a hint of bush if you if you pause at the uh yeah at the right right moment we've done that many a time in in some 80s movies but yeah it's 
you know, it, it's such it's such a great story. And actually, I can't think which way, whether it's Maria or Frida actually did enjoy horror movies. That that was the push to to play these roles. I think the confusion that, that the uncle got, which is Peter Cushing, on who was the the evil one and who was the good one. Even he was was confused, and I think I, I think I could tell the difference, but then again, maybe not. No, no I can't rem- it was, even begin to tell these two girls apart. But the only way you can really tell them apart is one is into sin, and the other is less so. And like when uh, Peter Cushing is ranting and raving about all the Count's sinful parties, one of the twins is like, "That sounds fucking awesome!" And <laughs> she's really excited. To go up and attend these, you know, these sinful parties, I mean, and, of course, and of course, if you learn, like the the spirit of Countess Karnstein has risen risen from the grave, and she's like, uh, she's talking about how people can become vampires. But we had this great bit where she's stroking a candle, basically like a dick, while she's getting yeah. it on. And, and so anyway, Hammer's going into new ter- new terrain with this movie, but I think this movie plays really well, and I agree, it's definitely one of the strongest of the post nineteen seventy period that uh, that Hammer was ever able to create. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's funny because I when I watched this as a kid, obviously I must have got a big big how do I put it, probably a good bit of fun out of it in my head, and it's that's why as a children seeing these sort of movies. You know, I would never have seen a Playboy magazine at that, that age, probably. It was something you would see later in life. But, you know, this was the first thing. This was close enough to porn for a 12-year-old, I think, you know. I don't know about your thoughts on that. Well, but, um... I, my older brother stole a penthouse from 7-Eleven when, we, when I was seven. So I got to look at a penthouse when I was seven. And I, by age 10, I had watched quite a bit of softcore porn uh, while on a family trip up to Canada. So I, I, I got started on that maybe a, a touch earlier. But yeah, but I didn't see Twins of Evil until I was well into my twenties. So, uh, mm. but it's still I, I find it delightful to this day. But just a quick shout out to the director John Howe. He also directed The Legend of Hell House, which is based on the book Hell House by Richard Matheson, one of my all-time mm. favorite no- uh, horror novels. And he also directed Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, which is one of the great '70s car movies. So he's a b- pretty versatile genre director. And I just think he, I think he absolutely knocked us out of the park. Everybody always talks about Terrence Fisher when it comes to Hammer Horror, but I think John Howe definitely deserves a, mm. a, deserves a big shout out right alongside him. Yeah, I'm just looking at a couple of the screenshots here now, and the way they lean over in the in the gowns that they're wearing when they're on their way back from from abroad, and you see everyone else is sort of glancing at them. They sort of got this magnetism everywhere. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Except except for when Gustav walks in, walks in and, and is disgusted that what they're wearing, they should be closed and the button top should be done up or whatever it was going to need to be for them because you, no woman should be showing off her breasts like that. But well, um, so funny I'm all for how, it. But as we get into the lesbian vampire craze, the way they start biting people differently, like when Christopher Lee bites a woman, he always does it in a very you know very intense magnetic way up right up on mm. the neck but as we get into the lesbian vampire films they start biting each other on the boobs and as, as soon as the twin gets turned into a vamp she feeds on this hot blonde there and bites her on the boob and if you blink you'll miss it but same thing happened in vampire lovers and i just love how they're like you know of course if you're a girl and you're biting a girl you're not gonna bite her on the neck you're gonna just suck it right from the titty and you know that's the the, <laughs> the, the decision they went with <laughs> that's, that's there's no getting around it and she said and then and then once she's obviously doing that and they the the uh, the witch the witch crew are out there hunting and uh no, it wasn't me. And there's a little trickle of blood down there. Down there. <laughs> yeah, it's like she got caught like stealing alcohol from her parents. Yeah. Uh, so, and a great way to uh, to fool the, the fool the uncle that they had the wrong one on on the 
the fire ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you end up getting the uh, a pretty interesting beheading scene as one of the twins gets uh, gets, behe- gets beheaded by Peter Cushing, and then you have a great bit where like the the count throws in, like an axe to the air into Peter Cushing's back. But it's funny, uh, Pete, everyone thinks of Peter Cushing as being this great, you know, kind of gentleman and heroic actor, but he plays it seems 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 to play a villain more often than not in so many of these. Some of the only ones where he doesn't play a villain is when he's playing Van Helsing, like in Horror of Dracula. So, but I think if you were to put all these parts side by side, I think Cushing played a villain more often than not. Yeah, I mean, I think was it Hound Baskervilles? He would he would have been Sherlock Holmes, know, yeah, playing playing good with it. And he, I mean, one of his last movies probably would have been Star Wars, but he was as evil as they come there, wasn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. From one, you're far too trusting. Yeah, he's he's fucking <laughs> incredible. Yeah, it's just I just I think it's quite yeah. He's one of the say. great all-time villains in Star Wars who had no blasters, no force, no spaceships. All he did was just walk around and say scary things. And of course, he destroys Alderaan. But it's I like how he's terrifying and evil, just as this shriveled-up old dude without having to yeah. ever get in a fight but, with anybody. But you listen to his voice, and he's he, he's yeah. You know, you're far too trusting. But he just comes out, and it's it could be Van Helsing there. Or, well, not Van Helsing. It could be. Any of his characters. Yeah, it could just, be Doctor Frankenstein. Yeah, it just, it just, it just all comes out. I just, oh bless him. He's, he's such a nice man. And if you go to YouTube, there was one interview I was looking at with, I think it would have been Terry Wogan, which is one of our talk hosts of, of the past. But then when you listen to how Peter Cushing talks, he's very to do compared to how he acts in 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 the films. Very much a gentleman, and uh, it's uh, I just I, I love him to bits. Yeah, a genuine you know. pop culture icon. Well, one last note about Twins of Evil, which I didn't even notice until this time, but the score, mm. as I was listening to it, I kept thinking, like, why do I know this score so well? And I finally realized it was blatantly stolen and ripped off for the first two seasons of Bruce Timm's Justice League cartoon. And I'm like, you couldn't think of two things that are further apart on the, kind mm. of the entertainment spectrum. <clears throat> But listen to the score carefully of Twins of Evil, and then listen to the opening score of uh, Justice League as they're walking in slow motion toward the camera, and you will hear that it's a, a, a blatant rip. But, uh, you know, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Well, if you send me a clip of that, I've actually got it on vinyl, the actual score for oh, Twins nice. of Evil. So uh, I might actually have to just put that on and have a, have a listen. A- uh, absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do. All right, well, the, the moment has finally come. Uh, what is your number one Hammer Horror film? It's probably going to be obvious to a certain degree. So we're going to go back to 1958, and we're going to go back to the first time that Christopher Lee donned that cape and his fangs, and as we said earlier, gl- glided down those stairs and uttered those words of, I'm Dracula, welcome to my home. And you think, oh, boy, you're in for a bad time. This is the story of Dracula. A creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. Try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. 
It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. As much as we've seen different versions of the actual Dracula um, story, Jonathan Harker, it, it does tend to lean towards the original still with that. And I just love this movie. It, it's superb. It's Does it annoy think, Brits when Americans call it horror of Dracula instead of just Dracula? No, well, it's funny. I, well, I didn't realise that until I downloaded a copy. Well, actually, I, I think I, I paid for a copy on Amazon and I saw that poster. The horror. I don't think it's a problem. I know, well, the I, big reason they did that is because people always forget that when people when movie business was very <clears> different back then, and a movie that was a hit like Dracula could <clears> play <throat> in the theater for decades. I mean, it's like, oh, Dracula's coming to town. Let's go see Bela Lugosi, or Invisible Man's coming to town. Let's go see Claude Rains. So just to avoid confusion, in America's releases horror Dracula because the Bela Lugosi Dracula from 1931 would periodically come through town, and so I love the name horror of Dracula. But I recognise that in the UK, it's just it's it's kind of foreign to him. Well, yeah, because obviously when uh, when you see the opening credits and you see his 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 coffin there, it just says Dracula, and, and then Dracula comes on the screen. I don't think it ever says a horror Dracula, unless they did that for the US. I'd have to check to confirm, but I believe it does say in red titles, "Horror of Dracula." The, they have the blood dripping down on Dracula's yeah. tomb, and then he cut to the red journals. Like, yeah, they're coming, they're laying it on pretty thick. But I'm right there with you. I think this is the best film that Hammer uh, ever made. I think it just it defines the template for everything to come perfectly. And due to budgetary constraints, they have to really condense and simplify the novel. And so as you're watching, I remember when I was first saw this as an under, I was taking a, a course on vampires in college, just called Dracula. Mm. And we read a lot of different like Slavic folklore. We read a lot of different books. We watched a ton of different movies. And I remember when I first saw this being annoyed by what I thought were liberties being taken with the story. But now I realize they just couldn't afford to have Dracula traveling all over Europe and doing all these things. Like, how can we condense it and simplify it so it's actually doable? And now I think it's one of the finest versions of the Dracula story imaginable. And it's because Cushing and Lee, they just... They, they they give this movie their all. And Peter Cushing is in total badass mode and he's so calm and he's so just so brilliant and so cunning. And Christopher Lee, he's never been more charming and more sophisticated. Mm. And everything about this movie it plays so well from the look of the film to the incredible confrontation at the end. It's just an absolute horror masterpiece. Absolutely. And 
obviously we did mention about the um you know universal were allowed to make this movie as long as they had the u.s rights for it hence why i think the horror of dracula was more profound to be known for because of universal pictures and it's like the the, the story of jonathan harker even though if you, I, i've not read the book in years but looking at the gary oldman story uh, jonathan harker is more prominent through that that that, that story where here he actually gets turned into a vampire and really early on. Yeah. They, they get him out, they get him out of the story pretty quickly because they want to focus on Van Helsing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then what we, what's quite funny about this movie for me is when you see after, after he's dead and he teams up with uh, his brother, which if you don't know, and I'm he's sure Alfred you Alfred from the Batman, 1989. Exactly. It's yeah, Michael Goffin. No, once you hear the voice, young... if you see him Batman, like, wait, wait a second. Oh, that's the fucking guy. It was 30 years before Batman. Yes, and for obviously for the uh, the 1980s version. But yeah, and, and then those, those two, so you've got Alfred the butler with Van Helsing teaming up to do the vampire killing. Um, it's superb. It really is. It, I think I could watch any part of that movie and just sit and watch it. If it's on, if it was ever on, I would just carry on watching well, it's it. Short. It's short. Lot, most of these movies are like 85, 90 minutes. They're, they're real quick and easy. Boom, boom, you're in and out. Yeah, and I think what really sells me on it is when Christopher Lee, apparently they're incredibly uncomfortable, but when he pops in the red contact lenses and either hisses or growls or faces off of people, he just looks so goddamn great. And there's one scene after another where he just sets the room on fire. Like there's a great scene where a vampire girl's about to bite Harker, Dracula yeah, yeah. bursts into the room with like the red eyes, and he's totally incensed, and he kind of hurls her aside. And there's a great shot of him when he's in the coffin with the blood dripping from his mouth. And he wakes up when the girl in the coffin beside him gets uh, gets stabbed. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we had this epic fight between Cushing and Dracula at the end where it's almost like professional wrestling. And Cushing has this incredible moment where he runs down the length of a table and leaps up and pulls down these curtains to bring the sun in. And I, I was DMing with you about this on Twitter. Mm. I think this is the best death scene of any vampire movie I've ever seen, where first he get like he gets a foot burned, and then like when Cushing improvises with the candlesticks and creates that cross, then at that point Dracula leans back and his hand burns, and he keeps losing parts of his body and shriveling up. It's just astonishing, and the two actors they completely just they they sell the scene. And the special effects don't look that bad still. I think I think I think the They're way as good as anything we... you see in Evil Dead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just I think obviously he. Um, Peter Cushing decided to to improvise with the director there on this, but I don't know how old he was when he was leaping off that that uh, dining room table. Yeah, I mean, those... in 1958 he would be. Let's see, I've got it open up right here. Where the hell is all the... Peter Cushing? He was born in 1913, so he would have been probably 46, 47 while doing all this. God, he's been around, hasn't he? Yeah, he, was, <laughs> he lived from 1913 to 1994. So, I mean, also what we get, we get everything that you want from a vampire movie. We've got, we've got garlic, we've got, we've got crucifix, we've got, you know, you got the stakes, you know, you've got the gothic graveyard with all the smoke and the mist coming out as well. It just sets that scene for that film perfectly. And I, I would, 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 would do sort of how to put it. I would argue this to the hilt on being, being one of the top hammer movies of all time. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, Easily the most influential because so many Hammer films 
follow the template and the formula and the look and the feel moving forward, no matter what monster <clears throat> might be at the focus of it. But I think it's just, it's hammer, unfortunately started copying itself. And also you had a lot of other people copying hammer. And so you, toward the late sixties, early seventies, it just starts to feel stale and it starts to lose some of its originality. But at this mm. point, it's just iconic. And there are all these great little bits like when Mina Harker wakes up after she's been fed upon and she comes out and she got this great, the actress got this great bit of direction where they weren't getting the scene right. And so uh, Mina Holmwood, she was told by director Terrence Fisher, uh, the, the actress's name is uh, Melissa Stribling. He said, mm. just imagine you've had the best sex of your life all night long. <clears throat> And then she came out and did it, and they nailed it the next take. Because even though she's been been fed upon by Dracula all night long, she's been you know in the throes of ecstasy, and she just had to have that nice postcoital bliss, and it totally yeah. works. It's a sh- it's a shame that I don't for whatever reason Peter Cushing wasn't in the next movie. I mean, and Christopher Lee wasn't in the next movie. He didn't play Dracula again for like eight more years. Yeah, I mean, there was a big. I think there was a big gap between the two films. So well, I think the next one, if memory serves, was Brides of Dracula, which was, was a hit. But yeah, but Christopher Lee had felt like he'd kind of been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. And it took mm. a long time for him to come back. And once he came back, they just immediately started cranking crank, crank out like sausage. <laughs> they made quite a few of them in a row. But yeah, but he yeah. took, a, he, he took a, a good, healthy break between his two outings as the, as the character. Yeah, I, mean, I like I like the Bride of Dracula. I do have that one. I've got a hard copy here, but uh, I don't class it as being a part of that collection of films. You know, as much as it has Dracula in in the title, it's not. You know, I don't feel it as being a, a Dracula film from that point of view. But uh, no, Peter Cushion um, and Christopher Lee for me are just what makes Hammer tick. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of other great actors. I mean, Oliver Reed is one hell of a wolfman or werewolf. He, mm. they, don't, they don't call him the wolfman. They call him the, a, a werewolf. But I think the werewolf looks so ridiculous. He looks way more scary when he's just <laughs> Oliver Reed because Oliver Reed mm. is a total sociopath and just <laughs> such a such a freak show of an actor. But, you know, he didn't really – he didn't stick around nearly as long and have as many recurring roles. And Christopher Lee, of course, would appear in a, a bunch of different Hammer Horror films. One of the most interesting uh, Hammer Horror films is The Devil Rides Out, and that was in 1968, and Christopher Lee's in that. And so they at least allowed him opportunities to play a wide range of characters. And for people out there who are Richard Matheson fans, as I mentioned before, he wrote the novel Hell House. He wrote The Devil Rides Out, and he wrote a bunch of great Twilight Zone. But for Richard Matheson fans, mm. Devil Rides Out, I think, is one of the essential Hammer Horror films. Uh, I think... I mean, probably horror film, but the uh, Fu Manchu character he did was was very good. I, I like that. And what else was it he did? Um, I'm trying to think what, what it was. There was a, a was it the Terror Train? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, yeah, they were in that together, but it wasn't a <clears throat> Hammer film. But um, no, but it came out. When the hell did that come out? Um, it came out like right before a different Hammer horror film, and so it kind of kind of hurt the box office prospects of the Hammer because once again people started taking those casts and those and the the uh, the overall aesthetic and doing similarly themed horror films, which kind of hastened the decline of Hammer because a lot of people were kind of aping their style. Yeah, I think people would probably think that. Do you know that may have been a Hammer movie, even though it wasn't. And the people that were making those movies probably got a bounce off of that. Yeah, like Wicker Man almost feels like a Hammer Horror film, but it's like a Hammer Horror film done better 
than Hammer was doing themselves. Mm. And so, as a lot of people say, like, Hammer started to become passe, and they kind of missed the boat in the 1970s. I think if they had successfully transitioned into the slasher era, they could have had another decade, but they completely overlooked this massive freight train of uh, this new horror train that was coming their way. And if mm. you weren't in the game of doing slasher films or something at least slasher themed in the late seventies, early eighties, you just seemed uh, out of touch with the horror genre. Well, yeah, because say that TV series, I don't think you've probably seen Hammer House of Horror. Have you I ever have not, watched no. it? Well, there's one, there was one, uh, the, one of my favorite ones, uh, Mike got the title wrong, but it's something like uh, the house that dripped blood, something like that sort of title. And it's basically about uh, a ha- there's a house where this um, guy murdered his wife with these scythes and that, and a new new family move into the house. The blood comes out of the taps, you know, typical sort of stuff that we've seen in many films in the past. And there's a big twist at the end, which I won't tell you. But they're they, they're great little great, great little um, 45 minute episodes. Nice. So Hammer used to would carry on from that in the 80s, but it then just you know, rolled on and passed out and that was it for them. I don't, they, they've been making films probably still now. I'm not too sure. Yeah, maybe, the, the but, studio still but, exists, but obviously once you, it was a, a few key personalities, both behind the scenes and in front of the screen that made, uh, that made the Har- Hammer Horror brand so distinctive. Mm. And once you lost those personalities, it's never been the same. No, it's not. But thankfully that, Cinema is um didn't, didn't Hammer Hard do the the Let the Right One In? Which obviously was a very successful film, but maybe I'm making that up. They they did something like ten years ago that mm. was a was a massive hit. And um hang on, let me I got it I got them open right now. Do 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 brand name recognition. Okay, so here's the brand name resurrection, two thousand seven to the present. Mm. And maybe they just acquired it, but hang on. Yeah, they did the film The Lodge, which came out earlier this That's year, yeah. which I saw. Le- oh, they did the the remake of, uh, they did Let Me In, which was the remake of Let the Right One So Let the Right One In was the original Swedish movie, and then Hammer did the remake Let Me In, which people did enjoy. It was a success. So they're still, oh, I quite enjoyed that film. That's yeah, great. so they're still around. It's just they're no longer such a distinctive factory like they once were. No, five films a year easily they would put churn out and uh Yeah, but they did uh four Quatermass movies, they did I think seven uh Frankenstein films, they did eight Dracula films, three mummy films, and then they got all these other ones like The Gorgon and uh, you know, Plague of the Zombies and yeah. The Reptile and Rasputin the Mad Monk. I mean it's just like the list goes on and on and on. And so yeah, they, they basically tried their hand at every classic horror character you can think <laughs> of. And sometimes they would knock it out of the park and create create something really special. Yeah, yeah, they did. And it's uh, I it, if anyone has never seen a Hammer film before, would you say dive into the first Dracula movie as yeah, the first? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's because <clears throat> I, I can only speak from my own personal experience. That's how I was first exposed to Hammer horror. I started with Horror mm. of Dracula. I was twenty, blew my mind, loved it, and so um, I think. That's the best way, the best chance it's going to get their hooks into you. But there's a, there's a lot of other good ones. I mean, I like Vampire Lovers, and I like I really like Twins of Evil, and I yeah. really like Curse of the Werewolf. Um, any other? What about Countess Dracula, because that's a great one. Which one? 
Oh, Countess, Countess Dracula? Dracula. I don't think I've seen Countess Dracula, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to hunt this one down. But it's one of those things they made so many that I, I never feel like um, I, I'm ever gonna run out of Hammer horror films to see. But as I mentioned before, also Devil Rides Out is a really cool, unusual one as well. But any final thoughts or words on just the legacy of Hammer horror, what it means to British culture, British film culture, all those I, good things. I think I think it's still in quintessentially British and it would probably always will be. And the, the way we have, we've had other stuff over here with, with, with different people in the movies, people like Ray Harryhausen, that it's, it's always going to be there and I'll be long gone dust myself. And I think hammer will still live and people will be still watching these movies for years to come, which is great to see. I know some people poo poo and think I'm watching an older movie, but they've got to, it, it, They've got to understand how these these were made, put together, and I think they 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 tell a great story. Really do. Well, the actual terror of watching a horror movie fades very quickly. Very few horror movies stay scary over time, mm. but you can appreciate the gothic romance, and these are great gothic romances in terms of the decor and the the, the, the wardrobes and like the the mannered way of speaking and just everything about it. <clears throat> It is a true time capsule from a, just a different era of storytelling with a different set of values in terms of how the horror would unfold. And I just find them irresistible. And I find them far more interesting than what would be... Like, I enjoy Roger Corman, but I enjoy him more as a producer than as a filmmaker. Mm. I, I'd prefer to watch Hammer Horror films over the Edgar Allan Poe films, which would be right. you know, yeah, contemporaries. Yeah, just... Like, I think Roger Corman kind of peaked with the, the man with the x-ray eyes, which I think is his best film as a director. Oh, superb. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Mm. But, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches and everybody should at least dip their toes into these waters to see what they think. And also with Halloween right around the corner, it's the perfect time to revisit these movies. But uh, where can people find you online if they want to talk more about horror or Hammer or whatever? So best place always is Twitter, at Steve007. Um, I'm always, that's my go-to for chat. Um, anybody wants to have a chat, I think we have a big film community there now that everyone's dipping their toe into from the moose to whoever that's getting on. The moose, he's uh, (laughs) he's, he's become an overnight phenomenon. Everybody loves the moose now. So there's there's some great, yeah, the best place for that. For gaming, um, you can check us out on at Pop Pop Culture Gamers. Um, We try to do it once a week. Sometimes family gets in the way, but we, we do try to keep that going. And with a few... TV shows returning, I'm still haven't, well, I, I don't even know if I'm going to go back to Star Trek Discovery. I may watch that first episode. Oh, and fuck Star like. Trek Discovery. I, I'm <laughs> so done with being angry and disappointed. And I'm so tired and bored of the exact same argument where the exact same mm. people saying, oh, it's cool. And oh, no, it sucks balls. It's terrible. It is just, it's such lackluster, shitty TV. And they are running that brand into the ground. And the and only way they'll stop making them is I think the haters are actually keeping it alive because anytime you like look up Star Trek discovery, you're going to get tons of videos and podcasts about it because there's so many people that are hate watching it. If the hate watchers would stop talking about it, the number of views and the number of conversations about it would diminish and they'd have to pass the baton to another storyteller, another writer. So yeah, my, my policy moving forward is not to cover Star Trek at all as long as my Alex franchise, Kurtzman... My, my favorite, one of my favorite franchises is, is blistered now, and it, it's a real shame, Yeah, but the, the good news is though, there's so much cool shit going on in the world of sci-fi right now that you mm. can totally ignore Star Trek Discovery and still have pr- plenty of sci-fi in your life. 
Oh, and even if you go back to the 50s and 60s, still there's plenty there to watch. Yeah, you can you can you revisit the, the the glory days as as long as you want, but it's one of the things where I don't know why Alex Kurtzman and his stooges are allowed to continue doing what they're doing. But anytime you're alienating like 80 or 90% of the fan base, you're doing something wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. But just, yeah, just classic sci-fi. There is loads out there and we discussed a few of them ourselves and, uh, you know, it's something that's damn sight better than that. But yeah, I, I, I may just dip my toe in and have a little look to how that story goes, but yeah, it's it's disappointing at the best of times. Absolutely. Well, what will yeah. not be disappointing for people is going back and revisiting the classic Hammer horror film. So thanks again for making this pitch and agreeing to do this Halloween themed episode. I'm looking forward to sharing uh, sharing it online with everybody, and let's not allow it to be such a giant chunk of time between our next recording because I always enjoy tackling these subjects with you. Yeah, we'll have to come up. I mean. There are, there's plenty there that we've mentioned in the past that we could be doing, so we'll have to have a shout out between British the two of us. British genre films on. are always a good game. It seems like British genre films from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s are always our, our sweet spot in like overlapping interests. Oh, God, yeah, there is. And there's this mother, I'll have to put my brain in, in gear, if not as if Frankenstein was was pitched out well. I should have to think about think of what we can come up with. and uh, Or if you can come up with something yourself that you can think about, we'll... Yeah, because it's been a long time. I think it's been, it's been quite a while, actually. Our last that. one, I think, was seven months ago when it was maybe, was it the bunch of guys on a mission? What the fuck was it? Was, was it Could our, have been. Yeah, I can't remember. At any rate, well, it's yeah, been too, it's been too long. It might have been, been, it might been the Western again. one. It might have been the, it might have been the, yeah, it might have been the uh, Great Escape and everything, wasn't it? I think it might have been that one. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> during, during the time of COVID, all time blends together. Oh, yeah, But anyway, yeah. it's always a pleasure Absolutely. talking with you and always a talk, pleasure talking yeah. movies with you. Absolutely. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if you want some more content in the near future, hunt down my video on my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But uh, hunt me down on social media at Colbrax on Twitter. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We really appreciate it. But we hope everyone has a very happy, happy Halloween. But more importantly, as always, Onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.